listening to Chill Time with Will Moore. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Chill Time is Will Time, and I'm your host, William Moore. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the last episode with my good friend, Jess Awesome. And with this episode, I came to bring back an old friend of mine, a friend of mine from season one. Go ahead and introduce yourself, bud. Hi, yeah, I'm Jacob Hunt. I was on one of the uh, episodes of Chill Time is Will Time last last fall where we talked about Donald Trump's administration, which seems to be a really uh, regular topic of conversation for us. Seems to be a regular topic of conversation for the entire globe right now, seeing as how he's turned uh, <laughs> politics in America into a dumpster show. Um, but for sure, man, I just kind of wanted to, I thought, I, you know, since me and you, you and I have been in touch, just kind of wanted to touch base and get back together and just share a good old conversation like we used to, man. So other than that, how things been going? Yeah, things have been going good. It's keeping busy. Um, so I'm a community health coordinator, um, which means that I work with our Kids Health Initiative, um, you know, some of our anti-mental illness stigma campaign work over in western Wisconsin. Um, so that work's keeping me really busy. Um, one of our hallmark programs is the school challenge, and so we're kind of getting ready in full gear to, you know, we're kind of wrapping up some planning and stuff for that for next year, and so it's it's keeping keeping us all really busy. Cool. As always, anytime you're working uh, with the youth or actually working in some sort of public health, there's always work to do. So, I de- you know, I, I definitely know how that is. You know, just, you know, recently myself, I've been out of town for the past couple of weeks traveling for work and uh, the work and stuff still calling, you know, still kind of coming along. But that's a good thing, right? Job security. You know oh, what yeah, I mean? We all, we all need a source of income. Um, you know, this is the world that we live in. Um, everything else been good, doing good, still running. I, I remember you telling me you, you, you're, you're still kind of running. You know, for those of you guys who don't remember, Jacob uh, is a marathoner. Even does the uh, the um, the ultra marathons where you know he's done like a hundred miles at a time. Um, and I kind of you know last we caught up at the coffee shop, you're kind of saying you're not really running um, as much as you were, um, but you're still kind of getting the mileage in. You, are you thinking about getting back and doing the ultra marathons again or no? Uh, I do want to, yeah. So I, I've amped down my mileage quite a bit. Um, finished up grad school last May. Um, got engaged as well. Um, Congrats. So, thank you, thank you. And so wedding planning has been keeping me really busy along with work. Um, but, yeah, I am in the process now of kind of amp- amping up mileage with the hope of doing a, a, a full marathon next um, next spring or early summer. Um, hoping to do one out of state. Again, one of my goals is to hit each of the 50 states for a marathon. Um, so far I'm at two, so quite a bit of work to do still there. Um, and then eventually, I would like to start getting to some of the ultra marathons again, but it'll be, it'll definitely be a slow process back at that. Yeah, that's definitely something that you can't just jump right back into. That's for sure. And so, let's just get to it, man. I All mean, right. what, what, you know, I feel like there's so many different things we can kind of touch on. But I know right now, one of the things that's kind of fresh on my mind is, I know you're pretty familiar with the Botham St. Jane trial, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Amber Geiger, you know, walks into the wrong apartment, you know, Dallas police officer, murders a man while sitting on the couch eating ice cream. Then after she shoots him in his own place, she doesn't even render him aid. She's like, you know, wasting time texting a boyfriend or whatever, basically asking what she should do. Uh, the police department comes, spends about a week before they even have her turn herself in or whatnot. You know, uh, most people will see that as probably acts of covering, you know, stuff up. Um, and just as as would expect, you know, it it just kind of turned into a mess. Um, some people, especially when it comes to people who know me, when it comes to politics or police reform or social justice issues in this country, they really think that I'm a pessimist. I actually look at look at it myself as a realist. Um, 
because history just doesn't lie. You know, history speaks for itself. And I know earlier this week, um, or I'm sorry, you know, the end of last week, uh, a conviction was given in her case. Uh, she was convicted of murder. Um, and so I know a lot of people in the black community uh, were super excited, right? And they're like, finally, just deserved. They never, you know, because so many times we've seen trials happen. Either no trial come about from a, an officer killing an unarmed, uh, you know, black person. Um, or a trial kind of happening, but they've been found not guilty. So everybody's excited. But I was just like, hold the phone. You know, hold on. I was like, uh, you ever watch college football game day? Oh, yeah. You remember, uh, you know, the dude Lee Corso? And you know how he always makes his picks? And right before he makes a pick, like he's talking about the stats of a team, and he goes, but wait just a second. Wait a minute. You know what I mean? That's the feeling I had. I was just like, yeah, okay, she was convicted. But uh, let's go. Let's see what this, uh, let's see what the sentence is. The jury hands down. Um, and like clockwork, um, you know, the judicial system in terms of African-Americans stay consistent. Um, she was given a super lenient sentence. She got 10 years for a murder. Um, then afterwards, you see the judge giving her a hug, giving her a Bible, all this type of stuff. And then one of the things that really disappointed me um, was the brother and the father of the victim wanting to saying that they forgive her and wanting to give her a hug and saying that they love her as a person and wanting to be her friend. Now let me be let me be upfront in saying I believe it is everybody's right to choose and grieve however they want to grieve. That is their right. All right. Um but I guess what my problem is is the fact that all too often I feel like the burden, the emotional labor or burden is on African Americans to always forgive and be lenient and be show all this compassion uh, towards the dominant culture uh, of white America when we're wronged and done bad. Uh, and that's what everybody expects. And it's always a theme in the, in the narrative, you know? Uh, it goes all the way back to MLK, right? Everybody's always talking about, you know, Martin Luther King was nonviolent, right? It's always to pacify and, and, and turn the black, you know, the black man or woman into a docile figure. Um, you know, everybody wants to go to that, but they never want to tell us the full story. As I said before, they always quote MLK with, you know, be nonviolent, but they never want to talk about redistribution of wealth, right? Um, when it comes to religion, they always talk about, you know, God says that we uh, need to forgive and have faith that it works. But if I'm not mistaken, you know, there's a part in the Bible that says faith without works, you know, is, is insufficient, right? And so I'm wondering, like, as as a as a white male, how do you see this? Do you understand um, kind of my frustration uh, with this reoccurring story and process? Um, I'm just interested to see what your perspective is. Absolutely, and so I do. I think I I, I don't know if if understand is the best word to use. I, I I can definitely sympathize. I can definitely educate myself on the topic further. Um, you know, like following these cases kind of learning some of the history there. And obviously there's a, a pretty um, egregious pattern of, you know, lenient sentences and things when it comes to um, people that are white. Um, but I, I want to get back to my original comment. So I, I, I understand in the sense that I, I can understand that there's a frustration there and I can understand right. why. But I, my walk of life, my, you know, my experience, my journey, I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that I understand the situation from your perspective. Exactly what right. I, what I can do, though, is I can educate myself and see why you're frustrated, see the history behind it, see the impacts that these types of decisions have on the African-American community. And so I can say that I, I sympathize 
um, and that you know I want to make sure that I'm having intelligent conversations about topics like this, while at the same time acknowledging that it's a walk of life that I'll never understand, mm-hmm, but I can mm-hmm. definitely try to you know help alleviate the situation by being educated on the topic. Right, and so and so my frustration comes in uh, you know s- several forms. Right, it comes with the judicial system, which always fails us. Um, it comes in terms of you know, a country, living in a country that professes to be, you know, uphold civil rights, equity, equality, and stuff as, you know, its principles, um, which it holds itself so dear. But none of that is ever shown uh, to really be true. You know, those those specific principles or pillars of what this country is supposed to be built on only seem to apply or benefit um, white America and, Af- you know, black black America is continuously left behind. And I even look at, you know, situations such as ways in such uh, in which religion plays a role. Um, and it, and that this was kind of a topic of a conversation among a few of my peers, um, because as you know, I, I come from a you know pretty religious family, but I'm actually not very religious myself. Um, I believe in a higher power. I just I, I don't I, I can't say that I'm a Christian or I believe in Christianity. And the reason why is to me, and this is this is a trigger warning for everybody out there listening, anybody out there listening, because um, I know as soon as I start to say this, a lot of people are going to take it out of context. Um, but I f- firmly believe in what I say, and I also believe that history uh, backs what I say on this. So I am I am not saying that Christianity is a white supremacist religion. What I will say, though, is the biggest beneficiaries of Christianity are white supremacists and heteropatriarchal, you know, white male culture. Um, And what I mean by that is, when has Christianity really ever truly benefited anybody outside of uh, white males, white, you know, white, you know, you know, you know, white culture in general, but but specifically white males. You see it used to colonize countries in Africa. You see it used to um, really eradicate, you know, indigenous peoples in America, um, you know, Canada. You see it used to infiltrate and colonize, you know, in uh, different cultures in South America, essentially all over the world, right? Manifest Destiny was used you know, and under the under the under the rule of the Pope, um, to really wreak havoc, colonize, and strip people of their cultures, their dignity, and and in 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 a lot many cases, call, you know, take away lives of many um, indigenous people, you know, across the globe, right? And then you see it used to, um, in my opinion, really brainwash and pacify African Americans in the standpoint of, like I said, we're always told. Anytime anything happens to us, at, you know, at, at, at the hands of, you know, um, white males or um, we're supposed to meet any type of disenfranchisement in this country with faith, right? Um, when we're harmed, like what you saw with uh, Botham St. Jean's uh, uh, brother, you know, hugging, hugs and forgiveness, right? And I kind of look at it as all the time that we're hugging and forgiving, you know, it's always forgive and hug, but at the same time we're getting greeted um with jail time or slugs. And for any of you out there who don't know what the lingo is, a slug is a bullet, right? We just seen just actually yesterday or the day before, you know, the woman who videotaped, you know, the incident, you know, of Amber Geiger murdering, you know, Botham St. Jane was fired from her job. The next door neighbor who testified against uh, Amber Geiger was actually shot in the head and in the face or in the chest, you know, a day or two ago, like two days ago. 
I, for one, don't find any of that coincidental. I find that as warning shots and signals to black America that if you, uh, that if you go against uh, this right supremacist structure in this system, you will pay for it. Um, and I think in many cases, like, it's, it's how it's always going to be, and I don't ever see things changing as long as we keep approaching uh, an oppressive system with this, you know, these, you know, stereotypical ideals of Christianity of, you know, be, you know, be a pacifist and forgive and hug everything out because the real world doesn't work that way, right? It doesn't work that way at all. And you can best believe when the roles reversed, we're not greeted with that same type of compassion, right? Judges aren't, uh, aren't hugging um, black assailants of murder or even drug convictions, right? Nobody's, you know, t- talking about forgiving uh, convicted black felons um, for anything, you know? We had just seen, you know, did a comparison. Amber Geiger is given 10 years for murder. There's a black mother who was actually given sentence of 25 years for shooting off warning shots in the air for somebody who was threatening her. She didn't shoot at the person. She didn't kill him. She shot warning shots in the air, and she got 20 or 25 years, right? We've seen, I think in the case of uh, Georgia, a young African-American boy, um, he either stole a pair of shoes or was selling a pair. I think he stole a couple pairs of shoes, and it was given uh, five years. Five years in jail? Yeah, that sounds right. So, you know, when I look at stuff like this, I, uh, you know, a lot of my frustration, too, comes with my own people, comes um, with the African-American uh, community of continuing to have the utmost faith in, you know, this system that wasn't built for us and continues to oppress us, but then also leaving faith in a religion that, to be honest with you, isn't native, or you know what I'm saying, to African-American people or to African people in general. We weren't you know, the, the, the tribal cultures in Africa, um, pre-colonization, uh, pre-slavery you know, uh, slavery and stuff like that, they weren't Christian countries. They weren't Christian nations at all. That was introduced to us, and it's been used essentially to, like, enslave and pacify us. Um, you know, it's, it's well known that back in the day, even the Bible was used to justify slavery. I mean, I don't know, man. It's just something I sh- I sh- I'm struggling with a lot right now. Um, and it's one of the reasons that I did kind of give up on Christianity um, and, and, like I said, believing in the higher power but not really the doctrine of Christianity because I, I have a hard time believing and praying for, uh, believing in and praying for a God who supposedly has all power and can do anything, but what did he do the 400 years that we've been, you know, oppressed? What did he do during slavery for African-American people? You know, like what 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 did African American people do to deserve, you know, really what's happening to us? And then just the common sense thing of you got the slave owner and the slave uh, slave master praying to the same God, both you know, hoping that their wish comes true. How's that going to work out? Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's sort of interesting. One of the really you know odd things I definitely agree that Christianity, um, you know, post seventeenth um, century, really did evolve, and it. So especially in America, and I guess I can't speak for places abroad just because I don't have that experience, but it seems like a lot of people, and this is coming from a Christian, from a pretty devout Christian, just to kind of preface that. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot of people use it and sort of tailor it to fit their you know, pre-existing views. Um, and so they use religion as a way to sort of justify their behavior, um, whether that's good or bad, um, and to sort of... And it, it absolutely is used to pacify other people, um, and I think that's sort of a you know inappropriate use of religion. But you have to acknowledge that it has been used in that way as well. I think the odd thing is that when you look at the roots of Christianity, um, and this is probably one of the biggest you know 
oddities and hypocrisies, at least that I think I've seen in the Bible, is that the origins are in the Middle East. Yet you go into any any church and you're going to see, you know, in in some cases even a blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus, which to me I call is, him, I call it John Mayer on a cross. Yeah, and it's just it is absolutely it is absolutely ridiculous. And I have this conversation with people all the time. I said that's that's an incredibly racist notion that we recognize. Nobody disputes this that the Bible, the origins of that text are in the Middle East. Yet you're going to somehow acknowledge that that you know that prophet was you know had blue eyes and blonde hair or even you know white complexion that's just not what it would have been and so i just i want to put this out there that i firmly believe that i believe in a god um and i i believe that he is dark-skinned and i think it's ridiculous that people don't don't acknowledge that and don't think that so that's why to me it's sort of odd the way that christianity has kind of evolved over you know over the last um you know a couple hundred years um I, I think that it, it has a lot of merit, and I, you know, believe in. And again, this is sort of interesting too, because there's certain parts of the text where I think you have to acknowledge that their definitions when the book was written might have been different than ours now too. Um, and so I think a lot of okay, people misinterpret yeah. the text. Um, so I'm getting really long-winded here, but no, my, go I, ahead because I spent like 15 minutes explaining yeah. myself. You know, so say but, what you got to say. But, but my my view on it is this: I think people that take the Bible literally. Um, and say it's the book of God is a little bit interesting just because people wrote it, for one thing. He didn't write it. Um, and another thing was that it was told orally for who knows how long before it was actually written down it's on It's like paper. the game of telephone. We know how that yeah. turns out. Exactly. The, the initial message is never uh, the exact message you get to, by the end of the game. Yep, and it's not right. even all the text either. They, they omitted big pieces of it. The Council of Trent, when they came together and decided which books were going to go into the Bible, even Christians disagree on this. Catholics have a couple of extra books in their Bible versus other denominations. And so you take a look at that, that there's missing text. Who knows what that says? The fact that it was told orally for a couple of generations before it was actually put onto paper and the fact that their operating definitions were different than ours. So when you hear things like timelines, like, you know, people live to be 700 years old or, you know, the world was built in a week, whatever you want to take a look at, they weren't operating on a Gregorian calendar. And so when people think you have some people that actually believe the world is 6,000 years old and not, you know, a minute older, <laughs> is ridiculous. Do you actually think that their year timeline was based on lunar phases and the Gregorian calendar? No, it was not. Explain the Gregorian calendar to, to those who are listening who probably don't understand what that is. Absolutely. And so you take a look at the lunar cycle, um, and you know how you get a full moon uh, yep. once a month. Yep goes through the cycles, and so essentially that, they're taking a look at revolutions, and that's sort of what they're basing their timeline on, is the movement of the moon um, and the phases. They weren't doing that back then. So back in ancient Mesopotamia, when all of this was kind of starting and being documented, they were documenting years based on the number of times the Nile flooded. And so if you had a heavy flood season, you could have potentially 80 years within the span of what we would consider a contemporary year. So if it was a, if they were experiencing drought, their timeline would have been completely it's distorted. Distorted, and so that's they they did not have a uniform, scientifically based system for calculating time over any duration, and so it was inconsistent. And so, when you look at this book, you have to realize that the people that wrote this book did not have some of the foundational understanding of time and space and other concepts that we have today. And so, you really have to take it with a grain of salt. And I think the bottom line is the book boils down to a couple of key points none of which involve enslaving other groups of people, putting people down, degrading them, um, basing so much on the exchange of social capital in a system that frankly really abuses um, you know, some of the potential 
misconstruations you can have from a text like this that was written thousands of years ago. Right. So let me ask you. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'm going to ask you a different. I'm going to ask you a difficult question uh, with you being a Christian. All right. All right. How do you reconcile? Okay. So what we both just talked about, right? When I'm when I. So if I come to you and I make a comment that the the, the Christianity has no use for African and like there's no use for Christianity in African American culture um, or any groups of people outside of white males, what's your argument against that statement? Uh, well, unfortunately, I, I don't really have one. I think that with the way that people use religion, and again, I think it's an abuse of using religion. They do use it for those purposes. It has disenfranchised populations of color um, and any other minorities, whether that's you know low income women, any any sort of minority, uh, the you know the LGBTQI population. Mm-hmm. It's it's been abused and it's been used. And the bottom line is this that I think is really odd is that one of the key messages is forgiveness and love thy neighbor, treat others the way you want to be treated. Things that we learn when we're you know barely able to walk. Yet, but those tenets only seem to be other people like they're not people of color. Yeah, people of color are the only ones expected to enforce those tenets. Absolutely. So, so I guess like so for being me, that, so being that I know you personally, right? Um, and like I like I know your like I know your spirit. I know you are like I see you as an ally, and I'm critical. I don't I don't use that word lightly at all. I'm very critical of individuals. Um, who claim to be allies and, you know, I don't feel like are actually doing anything to help, you know, dismantle oppressive systems or racist systems. I believe that you're either uh, essentially like, you, you know, the conversation you and I had in the coffee shop, you're either racist or anti-racist, right? Because if you're not doing anything, and just like you said it yourself too, if you're not doing anything to dismantle it, then you're part of the problem. You're, 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 you're racist. You're not doing anything to do it. Absolutely. The question I have is, being that you understand how Christianity um, uses an oppress like is used to oppress people of color, and really hasn't necessarily been when you look at it. Well, I feel like when I, in my opinion, when you look at it at a technical level, Christianity has not benefited African Americans at all, like at all. I can't. I just. I honestly just can't see anything other than on a, maybe for some folks on a personal level. It gives them something to think out, think of outside of their their real life world that gives them a sense of hope and pride that helps them make it through day to day. Um, what is it? What is it? What is it about Christianity that makes you knowing what you know and what we've talked about about it still hold on to it or still be faithful in it and believing that it is the right way to go? Absolutely. So I think um, one one thing that a lot of people do is they sort of blend the idea of organized and institutionalized religion with or not religion, Christianity, excuse me, with the tenets of Christianity. And so I think most people that have general, I don't even know if a sense of morality, but if you look at like the Ten Commandments, for example, a lot of those are written into our law, and they make, if you look at them at face value, not necessarily as how they're actually enforced in, you know, so like thou shall not kill. You know, it's obviously, it's thou shall not kill, you just, you don't do it, but then you look at pop, you know, these cases where white women get 10 years and uh, you know somebody from the minority population gets 25 years when they didn't even actually fatally wound anybody. And so when you look at that, that's not, that's not saying that the principle, one of the principles of Christianity, don't kill is wrong. 
what it's saying is that it's being interpreted and extrapolated in a way that's abusing the population. And so for me, when I when people ask me about the Christian community, I'm, I'm very forthcoming. I think a lot of people abuse um, what the text is saying and use it as a pretext for, you know, submitting populations of, um, you know, submitting minority populations to essentially abuses that they shouldn't have to. And like you were mentioning before, um, having, you know, always having to be the ones to offer condolences and hugs and, you know, forgiveness when it really should be, it shouldn't be a one-sided deal. It should be two-sided. Um, and the fact that it's not, I don't, for me personally, I don't think that it speaks against Christianity. I think it speaks against the way that it's wielded, the way that it's wielded, the way that most of the population um, goes about actually practicing it in their day-to-day lives. And I'll even extend onto that further. I think a lot of people that claim to be Christian don't hold some of the hallmark values. They don't see everybody as equal. They don't treat their neighbors with respect. They don't, and, and that's very clear when you see that they're treating, you know, white people and black people um, or any other minority populations unequally, whether that's in criminal justice responses um, or offering aid and welfare. I mean, I, I hear about examples all the time where people, they talk about welfare very differently between populations. And the fact is, if you, if you actually read the Bible, you'll see that Jesus offered all sorts of welfare. I mean, he was a prophet and he was washing people's feet. I mean, he was helping the poor. But for some reason, we don't feel like that's actually, you know, we ignore that part of the text. But, you know, God forbid that you're, you know, a homosexual that, you know, is is dating or is intimate with somebody of the same sex. They, they pick and choose what they're comfortable with and what they actually want to enforce um, from their religious. But then you see these people that are maybe homophobic, but then they see people begging on the street and they look the other way. I, I, to me, it's you don't get to pick and choose. It's You're either in it all the way or you're not in it at all. Yeah, and exactly. Same thing with the, with the racism, too. Either you're, you're either anti-racist or you're racist. And if you're up, you know, passive and you're sitting and you're watching it happen and not calling it out for what it is, then you're, you know, you're one of the bad guys. You're, you're on the opposite end of the, end of the spectrum. And so I think, for me, it's a really difficult topic. Um, and that being said, this is coming from somebody that was raised Christian. And so who's to say that if I wasn't, that I would still have the same conclusions and the same belief. But I think that it, what really disappoints me is just seeing the way that people actually practice their faith. Um, and they practice it in a way that disenfranchises other populations and doesn't help, help their neighbor. Um, you see people, they look down on people that are begging for money because they have to. They look down on people that you know, aren't pulling themselves up by their bootstraps which is absolutely ridiculous. It's, yeah, that's, a, that's been debunked a long time ago. That's been, you know, it was an absolute myth. And I think a huge part of the problem with American society today is that we're a meritocracy-based society. If you're not thriving and you're not successful and you're not living the dream, you didn't try hard enough. You're lazy. You're, and the fact of the matter is, I just I can't fathom how somebody that claims to be, you know, part of the Christian faith could even say anything like that, I guess. To me, it's it's just contradictory, and it just means that they really don't have a fundamental understanding of what of what they're practicing. Because whatever they're practicing, to me, at least in my eyes, it's not Christianity. Yeah, you you're you know you're essentially in the guise of a Christian, but you're not you're not walking the talk. Right. So for me, I, I guess to answer your question and sort of not answer it, I guess in a way, um, I I do think that the way that Christianity is practiced on the whole. Um, is widely false um, when you actually look at the doctrines of what the faith is saying. Um, it's just unfortunate that as, it seems like as soon as you get people involved um, and people that are in a position of social power, which is 
you know, white Anglo-Saxon males, all of a sudden it's, they're going to make the interpretations that are going to ultimately benefit their social situation and their status. And as soon as you do that, it, the tenets of Christianity kind of fall. I can dig it. Now, another, another kind of hot topic I kind of wanted to address today. So, you know, Nancy Pelosi finally got up off her butt, got up off her ass, and seemingly kind of committed to an impeachment inquiry. Um, what do you think is going to happen with that? I personally actually don't think anything is going to happen with it. I think that despite everything that goes on, like, you know, I still feel like the Democrats are, you know, don't have enough spine uh, to get anything done. Um, I feel like for the past couple of years, really even before that, actually, um, you know, they've kind of shown to be this way even during Obama's uh, last term that Democrats still want to play, you know, old school politics, go by all these rules or so-called ethics um, and don't actually make a power move. They don't actually do anything. They you, they come out and say, you know, hollow words, hold votes on, admonishing behaviors and stuff like that. But there's no punishment. There's no consequence for anything. Meanwhile, Republicans just say, this is what we're going to do and we're going to do it. And they do it and they get it done. So, and, you know, I've said this before, when it comes to politics, uh, the Democratic Party is playing checkers and the Republican Party is playing chess. They're, they're just, they're winning, which is, you know, and they're going to continue to win. Um, so because of that, like I said, I don't think this impeachment inquiry is going anywhere. I think that they could even go through the process of so-called impeaching. But the Senate won't do anything. There won't be any conviction, or indictment or a conviction. So he's, he's, he's still going to be there. Matter of fact, Mitch McConnell's already come out and said that he's not going to let it happen. Um, so, you know, it's, it's been an over, overblown phrase and term used, you know, time and time again, a constitutional crisis. We've been in that a long time ago, right? This, you know, the Constitution has been rendered, been rendered useless and just shown to be a piece of paper with words on it, you know, a long time ago. What's your take on it? Um, I know we talked briefly about this in the coffee shop, um, but I'd like you kind of to expound on that uh, for the audience because I just I don't have any faith in that process. I think it's useless. Um, you know, fine, go ahead, try to impeach him. But when you're not willing to, it's like a, a, a parent, you know, throwing hollow threats at a child, right? If you do this, I'm going to take this from you. And, you, you know, the kid does does whatever, and there's no immediate consequence. Pretty soon, you know, a kid doesn't care anything about the the threats that you're making. They know that you, if you, it's never going to be followed up with any significant consequences. So what's to stop me from doing whatever I want to do? Absolutely. And I think the whole system of checks and balances has really been under a lot of scrutiny under the Trump administration. And I think it's really shown that it's not as strong of a system as may, we maybe had thought before. That being said, you could also make a case that it's not, the checks and balances might not be the area that's at fault. It might be the politicians that are supposed to be acting on them and aren't. And so you take a look at um, the House of Representatives. And so that, I, I even, even with the Democrat majority there, I still think that it's going to be a long shot for them to get the articles of impeachment. I, I just think there's, like you mentioned, there's a lot of people that, you know, aren't holding their values, um, are kind of towing those, some of those party lines and some of those centrist views. And I think the disappointing thing is that a lot of people are thinking about the election and thinking about what their vote might potentially do to their constituency and who's going to vote for them. And I think, that, I, me personally, I think that's the that's the biggest problem. I, you know, if I was a politician, and if I became one, I would always. I, I I feel like you should run like, you should run your term like you're not seeking re-election. Like it's not, you know, what I'm saying like, pedal to the metal, go in to do what you think. 
you're, you, you know what I'm saying, what you, what you think needs to be done and what you think should be done. I mean, that's my, that's my opinion with any job. You know, I think I've you know, mentioned that to you before. Any type of public service job, any type of job where you're serving the people, uh, whether it's a realistic goal or not, work, try to work yourself out of a job. The goal is to work so hard at what you do that you do such a great job that that job is no longer needed, right? That, you know, you have delivered some type of service and set it up in an equitable um, and sustainable way so you're no longer needed to implement that or deliver those services. And I feel like polit- politics should be run very much the same way. But we, I mean, obviously we don't have that. We have career politicians. We have people who do just enough to stay in and appease people. Um, and, you know, a lot of that also comes down to just people, the public in general, not doing their homework, not caring. Um, what goes on that you know nothing bugs me worse than somebody you know complaining and talking about politics but never does their homework on it and doesn't know much about it um you know give me your your take on on some of that yeah absolutely and so i think a lot of people complain about t- politics and a they don't do their homework and b they don't vote and to me not doing either of those really takes away at least in my opinion your right to complain if you're not going to be an educated citizen and you're not going to take the civil responsibility seriously, then I think that you you really don't have a right to complain about whether that's your politician, whether that's policy action that's being taken or not taken. I, I really do think that if people want to complain, and I complain a lot, I complain a <laughs> lot for those that know me, but I do it with an, a foundation that I, I keep myself educated, I keep myself up to date on who's voting for what. When I go to the ballot box and I see those names on there, they're not, it's not just names that I saw in a commercial that one time, or it's not just that, oh, I saw them on the last ballot, or, you know, it's one of those things where I, I know generally what each of them stands for, what they voted for, or didn't vote for, or what they stood on the sidelines for. And I think that that gives you a whole new perspective of the power of the ballot, but people don't take that responsibility seriously. Yeah, so. there's, and there's a there's there's different ways that you know for people who think that it's you know hard to kind of keep up with the way their um, you know their representatives and stuff voting. There are ingenious ways of doing it. Matter of fact, there's an app that you can get on your phone. It's called Countable, right? And so you you know you download the app, you put in your representatives names or whatnot, and basically it tracks them. So whatever bill or, you know, you know comes up, it will tell you how they voted on it. So you, there's a running track record, and it, you get alerted you know, ASAP you know, when the vote goes through and when the vote happens and how they voted and, and you know, give some reasoning and stuff behind it. And, and so, you know, there's that part. And, but then again, at the same time, you know, you mentioned people who don't vote. I kind of sympathize, too, because this too, there's still people, uh, you know, people in communities of color who don't think voting matters. And it's it's kind of hard to argue against them when it comes to, uh, when, you, when you think about the last, you know, you know, the 2016 election, you know what I mean? When things are rigged, when you got gerrymandering, when you have... Um, electoral college. You know, the electoral college. When, you know, electorates can choose to vote however they want to. They can, you know, a district can vote 99% one way, but if that, you know, that elector decides they want to do something else, they're allowed to do that. You know, and we've talked about the racist origins of the Electoral College and why it's no longer needed um, and, and, and how it's just a, a way to, you know, continue the same age-old system that keeps those, that you know, the haves in power. Um, but like I said, realistically, when we have supposedly have those in office who are supposed to represent us, you know, you know, folks in the, you know, the Dem Party, you know, Democratic Party and stuff like that, when they don't even see that sort of thing or they're just choosing not to address it, what do you say to those folks? Who say, you know what I mean? Like, I, why should I vote? It doesn't matter. Yeah, and I think even even when you look at a lot of Democrats that are on, you know, our side and that sort of 
you know, using that term loosely, you look at, you, you just have to look at the longevity of the situation and, and the makeup of Congress. And so, I mean, for the vast majority of, um, you know, politicians, it's old white men, and that's just the way that it's always been. And so you've, you, even when you have these so-called progressives, um, you know, saying that we need diversity, we need to be inclusive, yet none of them are stepping aside to help, um, you know, a minority or somebody to help establish that inclusivity. You don't, you don't see that. They're not, they're not leaving their seats. Well, they want to keep their social capital. I think, and well, I think that leads to another point of, this, you know, there being a such thing as a racist liberal, right? Everybody, you know, like, likes to believe that, you know, to, to, for somebody to be a progressive or somebody throws around the progressive or, you know, throws around the word liberal, that that all of a sudden um, absconds them from being uh, a racist when that's, that's – not true at all, you know what I mean? Uh, I've given the example on this podcast before about Katie Stanton, right? How her and Frederick Douglass constantly went head-to-head. She was considered a liberal, you know? She was considered to be progressive, you know, fighting for women's rights. But she also believed that white women's rights came before the rights of any person of color. That doesn't sound progressive to me, you know what I mean? It's a, And it's a racist sentiment. And she even at one point said that she, I think she said something like, you know, she would rather die before she saw people of color get the vote. Uh, before white women, right? And so, you know, I feel like, again, you know, that comes with, you know, a lack of knowledge, how soon people forget when they don't do homework. You know, she's, you know, constantly held up as somebody to be worshipped, especially for some feminists and, and, you know, progressive folks alike. And she's shown to be just as dangerous as anybody else. Absolutely. And I think one of the the issues, and I've I've been doing some reading on this this particular topic lately, um, that you can have people that, and a lot of it stems from, you know, your definition of racism. Are you talking about somebody that's a blatant racist that's, you know, using bigoted language and using language that puts others down? I mean, that that's a lot of people's operating definition of a racist, but I think it goes deeper than that. And that's, again, some of the books that I've been reading call it out and say that it's it's more of a, a system. It's a structure. It's It's a structure that we all, without choice, are participating in, and how we participate is our choice. Mm-hmm. And so you have this, you know, really, really deep, historically rooted racist system that as you know as a white man I benefit from that being said that doesn't mean that I should just you know benefit from it but then feel sympathy for minority populations it means that I have to take an active responsibility in learning about the racist structure of the system and then ensuring that I'm you know sort of keeping myself in check and keeping myself in balance and back to the politician piece you, you look at these politicians that say that they're progressive but then they're not educating themselves at all on the topic. And so essentially the way that they, they see it is that they have nothing more to gain from learning about diversity and learning about being inclusive. They, they're like, well, I'm a progressive. I, you know, I, I, don't call people, I don't call people names. I don't use racist language right. or slurs. And so I'm therefore not a racist. But the fact of the matter is you're in a position of power because of your race. You don't acknowledge that. And a lot of people get really defensive on this topic because they say, well, I worked hard to get to where I'm at. And no one is saying that you're not. But the fact of the matter is, you had a lot of privileges that you didn't have to work for at all just because of your complexion. And so I think people need to acknowledge that racism goes beyond slurs and things that you see on TV and from the Trump administration. It goes into a much deeper social system that we're all socialized into from the time that we're really, really young. You look on the media, you know, as a white person, I see people that look like me. People that are African-American or Native American, they grow up seeing, you know, white people on these commercials. They grow up seeing white people in positions of power. They don't see people like them. And so that's, 
again, that's a walk of life that I'll never get to experience, but I have to acknowledge that it's a very, very real experience for a large portion of the population. And what we need to do is educate ourselves on this topic, not rely on minority populations to have to do all of the, all of the education. The onus should not be on minority populations to teach us why our system is broken. You know, we need to do the research. We need to do the homework. It's out there. It, you know, questions I think are, are fine, but it, you, there, there's plenty of literature out there that if you want to learn about racism as a social structure and status, you can do the homework yourself. And so I think a lot of people just don't, you know, and, and even, even myself a few years ago, you know, if somebody said, are you a racist? I would have said, absolutely not. But the fact of the matter is I was partaking in a structure that I was socialized into. And that's not to say that I had a choice of being socialized into it. This history well predates me. But the fact of the matter is, is that just by me being a white male, I'm participating in that system. And so I need to acknowledge this and I need to figure out ways that I can essentially break down those barriers right. and help create the sense of equity and equality that there should be. I think that that's important to, to notice because it's not, it's not just enough to like, kind of balance ourselves or become aware and educate ourselves about it but again we have to be we have to also help in actively dismantling it right because we can educate ourselves but still do nothing right and we can try to balance ourselves but not still try not not, not to balance the, the, you know the levels of power in society but when we start to actively you know dismantle those structures so that we are actively balancing those levels of power of power across the board and the public sphere then we're indeed um, you know we're doing what we need to do. And, so in your um, and we're being anti-racist. Yeah, in your perspective, so I, I have an example that, that comes to mind for me. Um, but in terms of actively dismantling, what would you see as like a good first step for somebody that maybe isn't as educated on this topic? And even just for me, you know, from my perspective, I one concrete example that I can think of is sort of what we were talking about earlier with these progressive politicians saying that they need, you know, Congress and all sorts of other, you know, educational and, um, you know, governmental bodies need to be more diverse and more inclusive yet they're clinging to their seats for dear life and aren't willing to step aside and say that, you know what, I can have a role in this by stepping aside and helping somebody that's in the minority population Definitely. I think that, gain yeah. the seat. So what else would you see as a concrete example of like actively dismantling? Like for one, I'll give you an example of um, something from a trip I was on in Kansas City uh, a couple weeks ago. So, you know, as you know, I you know, talked to you about it before, I was selected 40 under 40 in public health, right? And so part of that, there was a war ceremony in Kansas City, and there was also kind of, we had like, you know, together in the cohort, and we were also taking these leadership courses. Well, I wasn't a part of this one course. I was in a different group, but I heard about an incident that went down in a different group, right? And what had happened was, basically a training video was shown um, about different levels of like what's considered like violence in the workplace and there was uh, an African-American woman um, who had an interaction on the video training video this is you know how it was told to me had an interaction with her you know white superior and you know after the video was you know she later addressed him and, and just kind of said that you know I'm, I'm paraphrasing that she wasn't comfortable in how you know he had talked to her and that he needed to address her different, um, and that his expectation of her or whatever needed to be different. Anyways, um, as a result, the instructor kind of, I guess, stopped or paused the video and said that on the on the spectrum of violence, she displayed 
uh, a level of violence toward this instructor. Well, one way I see in how um, people can actively dismantle it, so, and actually uh, a, a person that I've since then become pretty good friends with, um, a white male was taking that class, he was one of the first people to address that and say that, no, I think that this training video is problematic, to highlight and, and um, basically ignore, um, you know, racial and social norms uh, with how... Um, in interactions with how it is in this country, in the workplace, and in, in everyday life, or whatever, when you come to um, white males in power and how they interact with women, but especially women of color, in uh, uh, in a less powerful role, and and then for her to address that, um, how she was talked to and how she felt disrespected, to then label her as being violent was problematic because a it it. It wasn't, and B, it it it, it basically uh, bolstered a ra bolstered a race uh, a racial stereotype of black women being angry, so on and so forth. Now, again, I'm definitely I'm paraphrasing this, and this also did happen a couple weeks ago. But you know, for him to stand up and be one of the first people, now I don't think he necessarily was the first, but one of the first people to address that on behalf of, and there were women in color in the room too who stood up and addressed it for themselves as well. I think that was awesome. He was taking initiative and letting this trainer know about, you know, the issues with this training video, that it was problematic and that it should not be used, right? That is an example of somebody taking an active role and not just, you know, educating himself on it because he could have just learned about, you know, how, you know, learned about these, you know, these social structures and how that wasn't okay. He could have just, you know, looked at that video and be like, ah, he, you know, said to himself, said I disagree, and, but went on and not addressed it. And who knows how many other groups of people this video could have been shown to, right? But he didn't do that. He stood up and he spoke out against it, right? And then I'm, I'm actually happy and proud to say that from, you know, that from what I heard, actually a bunch of people in that room um, stood up and spoke out against that video. And to me, that's one of the, you know, a prime example of, you know, just recently of what I, you know, I saw or heard about in which a bunch of people took an active role in trying to dismantle that. Because this, like, again, this was a training video, right? So this is setting guidelines and telling people how they should perform in the workplace and what is expected of them in the workplace down, in, you know, down the line, right? So how many, if this wasn't addressed and gone unchecked, you know, even before they were, you know, these this group of, uh, uh, you know, awesome people addressed it. How many minds did that video and that training mold to believe uh, that that was the way to go? Or, or, you know, how many, you know, other people did this tra training video um, kind of instill this notion um, in, a, in their, you know, in a direct way that they should be upholding this racist social structure uh, in the workplace, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I think, too, that it's, and a lot of it's, again, and it's just materials that I've been reading on the topic, too, that people seem that they they want to have these topics be safe and comfortable. And I think you had brought this conversation up, too. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, when yeah, we were yeah. in the coffee shop, that that's, oh, it needs to be in a safe place and it needs to be comfortable. The fact of the matter is, is that, you know, issues that, were, that are being dealt with right now and that will not be dealt with in terms of, um, you know, racial tensions, whether that's between law enforcement and the African-American community or what have you, it's those situations sure as hell aren't comfortable for the African-American community. Why the heck should we have the privilege of being comfortable in these discussions when, frankly, we're the ones that are perpetrating the system? And so really, if your conversation is comfortable and you feel safe, you don't make any growth. As a white male, I'm not growing at all. I'm not going to learn. If, if, if I'm just being coddled and I'm being told, oh, well, you're a good person, you're trying, you're, you know, 
that that doesn't do anything for me. That that just essentially enables the behavior that I'm currently partaking in. And so what you need to do is you need to confront the behavior, acknowledge it exists, and learn from it and make a different decision next time or say yeah, something. Put in, in some actionable steps to addressing Ex- it going about it different. Exactly. Yeah, because I remember like at uh, at a different conference in Rhode Island, I kind of spoke out about that um, actually in a breakout session. And was a, you know, and I basically highlighted how this day and age we have people that talk, you know, do talk the talk about having, uh, you know, addressing equity and equality in the workplace, and how they use catchphrases. They weaponize actually phrases like safe space um, to 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 initially like smother out conversations and real movement towards equity and equality in the workplace, uh, specifically by people of color. And to articulate that even more to folks out there who are not understanding what I'm talking about, the reason I have an issue um, with people using the word needing safe space um, when we're having these type of conversation, that's actually, I I remember telling you, that's actually the one thing that I think I I probably agree with, you know, far-right people about when saying, like, I hate the phrase safe space. And, And it's because people like that, Subversus, racist liberals or progressives, so-called racist liberals or progressives or whatnot, weaponize it um, by saying get it, they, they conflate the term safe space um, and, 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 and confuse it with comfortability, right? And so they don't like being uncomfortable. So they to stop you know, the use of having to be uncomfortable and actually having to address their privilege and growing and racist social structure and behavior, they're saying, well, we need to make sure, you know, uh, you know, we need to get everybody, you know, relaxed and calm down. Tempers and emotions are running high. We want to make sure that this is a safe space. I'm like nobody's throwing punches in here. There's no weapons around here. This safe, this space ain't is it isn't unsafe at all. What it is is uncomfortable, yep. right? That's the that's the that's what's really going on. It's uncomfortable, and you don't want to have the uncomfortable conversation because you have to address, you know, what I'm saying like your privilege and the fact that you do the same thing. You weaponize these phrases in these language in a way. Um, you, you use clever ways to, to, to weaponize it in a way to stop real progressive um, movements, and you you use that clever tactic or that nuance of the conversation for people who don't pull back their layers to see what you're actually doing. And I noticed when I said that there were a couple of ladies in in the group that kind of gave that look at me, like a they were they were kind of taken aback and offended, but also at the same time, they felt like guilty. Do you know what I'm talking about? That look of being offended, but guilty at the same time. And I remember giving them that look back, you know, thinking to myself, I was like, oh, I hit a chord. I must be talking about you. You must use, you must have used those very same phrases in uncomfortable situations. There's a difference between a safe space and uncomfortable space. It's unsafe if your life and stuff and your physical, you know what I'm saying, like, and you're physically in danger. If your feelings are hurt, that's not an unsafe space. Let's get that straight. That's an uncomfortable space for you. Absolutely. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of people, including myself too, and again, it's, I still have a lot of growth and a lot of learning in this area to do and a lot more things that I could do to take action. And the fact of the matter is the first step is get uncomfortable. That shows you that the problem is very, very real and that you have an active role in it. And the, and the fact of the matter is, yeah, you hear terms like safe space and, and as soon as that term gets thrown out and as soon as, you know, the attention all of a sudden now is not a, is not talking about race and its its role in the workplace or whatever the situation may be that you're training. All of a sudden now it's well we don't want any hurt feelings and so essentially tra- tra- training's over. It, you're right. at, nothing is nothing else is going to be gained from that training that day and it's and it's a shame because it's you need to be uncomfortable and like I mentioned before. God forbid that white people be the ones that are uncomfortable for once in this right. situation for being called out on our behavior and a lot of white people don't. And including me for the longest, you don't you don't think of when you think of race, 
white people don't think of themselves as part of a white, you know, by that definition, we don't think of ourselves as part of a racial group. It's sort of almost the idea of othering, like when people, when white people, it's think just a race, given that you're a group, right? Yeah, and I think I can't remember who said it, but uh, it, was it was it was an activist who said who wanted to prove how you know race was a construct or whatever, and she asked, you know, she I wish I could remember who it was. I'm probably wrong. I'm gonna. I feel like like it like saying like it was Angela Davis, but I bet I'm wrong. Anybody out there listening, please feel free to fact check me, and I'll feel bad that I'm, I'm probably getting it wrong. But she but she was proving a point, and I'm paraphrasing this. She's like, what do you call a black person? African American. What do you call an Asian person? Asian American. You know, and you know, an indigenous person, a Native American. What do you call a white people? They just call them American. There's no there's no you know name in front of that. And white people have, and again, this is sort of the thing that we're socialized into. We see white people on TV. We see white people in the class. Classrooms. And so it's white, like they're the standard. Yeah, it's the default. Yep. It's you, you sort of. It's almost like we're the standard, and then the differences that are are in any other any other race or complexion, which is absolutely ridiculous. And so I think in these conversations, um, as soon as you point out that we have a race and we have a role in the racist structure, all of a sudden people get really uncomfortable because they have to deal with the fact that they've probably never thought about or had to deal with in their entire lives that. You are a race, and you have a role in the racist structure. We are not the default. Right, right. That, that's And the way that the media portrays it would have you think otherwise, but we're, we're not the default. It's a ridiculous sentiment. So real quick, predictions on 2020. Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you started it off. I'm not, something tells me that you feel the exact way I feel about it. Yeah, not overly optimistic. Um, I think no matter what happens, and my dad and I have been having conversations about this, no matter what happens, there's going to be a huge argument from the Trump administration. Um, if he loses... Um, which I don't think will happen. Which I don't think will happen, unfortunately, either. I think our country has really shown its true colors, and I think that that's until the eight years are up, which I also still think is going to be an interesting transition of power, which has historically been peaceful, but I don't think will be the case regardless of whether it's at four or eight years with this administration. I think he's going to push for 12 16, yep. even longer. Yep. And I can see them rewrite, you know, essentially trying to rewrite the Constitution and the balance of power and, and they, creating what, you know, you see other countries, you know, have like Turkey and, you know, China. And, yeah, and it can be justified pretty easily. Oh, we're in wartime. We, you know, we need to postpone the election or, oh, we've, you know, there there is actually some foreign interference and so we need to investigate this. And until we do, we need to make we, the, the elections, can't we can't maintain the integrity. Mm-hmm. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to keep the current establishment in until we can verify that the elections have their integrity back. And the issue with that, obviously besides the fact that we would have Trump for a longer period of time, is that it's it sets the standard and sets the precedent that... Um, this is in fact what you can do. Yeah, and it is and it's it is no longer, it's, it's an autocracy. It's a one person leading the show. There is no checks and balances. There's not... There's not groups. It's one person. It's a dictatorship. And seeing how this particular president talks about other dictators, I don't think that's that that that's that huge of a leap. And the federal election committee right now is essentially being dismantled, being dismantled. Being dismantled. And so I think that leaves a lot of fertile ground for this to actually come to fruition, where you've got essentially the the elections can't be. The integrity isn't there. We don't know if they're safe. And so we're not going to have elections until we can verify that there isn't foreign interference. That verification will never come, therefore no transition of power. Um, and so I think that that's going to be a huge issue. And I think the only way that that potentially wouldn't happen is if there's a landslide, which I'm not optimistic about based on, you know. Yeah, but sure, for, for sure. I definitely don't see a landslide happening either because, again, just as many people, I remember um, 
I laughed at several things. I laughed at one of the things was somebody had mentioned something about the polls, right, showing Trump behind in the polls. And I was like, you mean those same polls that said he didn't have a chance to win in the first place? Polls don't matter, all right? I, and I, to be honest, I don't even know why we still have them. They've shown themselves to be absolutely useless. And anybody who pays attention to them, all they do is lull themselves into a false sense of security about what is, what's actually going to happen. Two was uh, a, uh, a news um, a, a reporter interviewing uh, a family um, out in Iowa, I think it was, right? And the mom, you know, the, the whole family said that they had voted for Trump, and the mom was saying that she couldn't vote for him anymore because of certain things that he, and he did. And the dad couldn't even step up and, and take responsibility. He said, well, I didn't vote for Trump. I just voted against Hillary. It's like, dude, at least, you know what I'm saying, like, own up to it. Like, you still, you still can't even take responsibility for what you did. And so it's individuals like that that I looked at that situation, I laughed at that situation, too, because, like, they're only saying that because they're on national TV, Right. They don't want people to single them out as Trump voters and part of a and, and, and being racist and part of the issue and stuff like that. But when it comes time, once again, to get in that ballot box. Right. And when your identity is concealed to still cast that vote for what you truly want. Right. Because we've always said from the jump, you know, this election was never about um, economic anxiety, anything like that. This 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 election was about um, it was about race. And, and, and white male dominance and, 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 and white male supremacy. But it was never about economic anxiety. You know, I, I cringe when I hear people use economic anxiety or whatever. And I, I cringe when, and, and just in general, because I'm like, you know, especially when it's used to defend white supremacy, because I look at that and I'm like, first and foremost, if you're a white person in this country, you've had a 400-year head start. You have every advantage in the world. Things are still skewed you know, in your favor, right? You have stuff put in like, um, you know, the, the largest beneficiaries of welfare are, are, are white Americans that live in middle America or live in the Midwest or live in or your rural communities, not African-Americans as people like to say. And then the second biggest biggest beneficiaries, or maybe even the first, and, 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 and people in rural communities being second, is actually corporate America. They benefit from welfare. All those, you know, tax breaks and stuff like that, that's corporate welfare. That's welfare. So it's the top 1% who don't pay taxes at all, forget paying their fair share, who don't pay their fair, fair share at all. And then it's, you know, who rounds it up is, you know, uh, you know, white Americans in rural America. Then you have minorities. You know, so they're down, they're, they're down the chain as far as people who are, are using welfare. Then you have, then you look at stuff like, um, you know, policies or laws that were pushed, such as affirmative action, that were supposed to benefit people of color, and the biggest beneficiaries of that are are, are are white women, right? When you look at different things that happen like that, you look at white male privilege or white privilege in general, to say that you have economic anxiety, when you've had that type of a head start, I look at it as you've had every cheat code known to life. At this point, if you're still not doing good, you need to look yourself in the mirror. Like, honestly. Because I don't think I, I have a hard time for a, a, you know a black person or a minority person on this planet who can look at another white person and be like, oh, you you having a rough time? Like I really, really, really feel bad for you, because you know the southern strategy and even which forget that that didn't even leave that still exists. The whole basis of that was for even poor white folks to look at black people and like I might not have anything, but at least I'm not those people, right? 
And so what does that say overall when even poor people, white Americans, who aren't doing well at all and suffering? Because I'm not saying that they're not suffering. They're, you know, some of them are, are, are really suffering. They're, they're going through some challenges. When you lose out on jobs, every, that affects everybody. It affects people of color more than it you know, affects white America because even data shows that um, uh, a, you know, a white male with no college degree um, who only has a high school diploma and a criminal record can get a job faster than a black male with no college with 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 a college degree and no criminal record. So let me repeat that: a black man with a college degree and no criminal record is still less likely to get a job than a white male with no college degree and a criminal record. So we we, we talk about those things, we bring those things up, which are very real issues, very real things. Like I said, you can still feel bad for somebody who doesn't um, doesn't you know is suffering out there, but at the same time, I still look at them and go. You still got it better than me. And they know it, too, because they will still look at me and be like, "Mm, well, at least I ain't that guy. You know what I mean? And absolutely. And I think that that brings up an interesting conversation, you know, an interesting topic that my my dad and I talk about a lot, too, is you sort of mentioned corporate America and corporate welfare, um, which we, you know, have sort of as society have termed them differently. You know, welfare is that thing that poor people leech off of and versus corporate welfare. Well, that's they're stabilizing the economy is what they're doing. We're we're bailing them out to stabilize the economy. So that way we have more money to spend to fuel the economy, which is a a crock of crap. But that's (laughs) but it's it's the same thing. It's welfare. It's helping somebody when they're down. Exactly. The only difference is we call it stabilizing the economy versus and really when you think about it, putting money and resources into the pocket of people that you know, already have it because the wealth gap is still growing too, right? Absolutely. So we're putting money, we're giving tax breaks and giving extra money to people who are still making money hand over fist. Yeah. The issue is they're not making as fast as they want to, and people at the bottom are still losing money, right? Yep. You know, I'm helping somebody with a campaign who who is running in a district, running in the world, whose gross median income has dropped the past four to five years. You know, and it's less than thirty some thousand dollars. Yep, and the, and yeah, and those people all pay their taxes. Corporate America definitely doesn't pay taxes. Amazon right. paid zero dollars in, in income ta- in in taxes, which is absolutely ridiculous. And they've made billions. But yeah, to, to get back on to so the whole idea, at least with me, I, I think that the the idea of race has sort of changed over time. I think that the the power structure still is leaned or well not leaned completely skewed towards white males and people of white race. But it's sort of the, I, I think the intention has almost changed over time, and so. You know, originally it was, you know, a labor pool that you were able to justify through, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whether you justified it through religious text or other means. Um, now it's almost, I, I feel like, a divisive tactic with people that are in the top 1% because what they do is they, you know, they they fuel the racist system. And so essentially you're right. You've got the 99% of the population, which if you can imagine all of that, the 99% all getting together and holding people accountable, that 1% accountable, how great that would be, how amazing that would be, what opportunities there would be, how different everything would look. But that doesn't happen because you're right. They've sort of employed this idea that everybody has somebody to look down on and everybody, there's differences that we sort of, they sort of capitalize on. And so you're right. You're thinking, well, I'm in a crappy spot, but instead of looking up, I'm going to say, well, at least I'm not that guy. Or at least the one thing the 1% never want is for the 99% to look up. To start looking up. To start exactly. looking up and hold, holding them accountable. And so they, they set up the system. That's again the purpose has sort of changed over the years, but it's still disenfranchised minority populations. That everybody sort of has a different, you know, they they sort of have a different lens, a different um, population to look at, and sort of say, well, you know, things could be worse. Instead of actually holding the population accountable, that is responsible for their their current social condition, which is the one percent. Absolutely right, man. Man, 
as I always do, it's been fun. I feel like every time we get together, even at the coffee shop, we talked until it what they they have a get they had to give a come by and give us a closing warning, didn't they? They did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in their in their way, there was you know, do you need one last refill? Yeah, 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 yeah. Which yeah. is which is their way of saying get out. Yeah, so get that's that's the way of saying get the hell out. You know what I mean? Or like if you're in a in a night spot, it's like you know this is last this is the last last song. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, last song. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I definitely appreciate you coming by as always. You know, you're always welcome whenever you want to. Um, and just in general, you've always been, uh, you've always been, like I said, I've always seen you as an ally, a breath of fresh air, somebody I can talk to and have real conversation with, um, who I know is out there actually doing some work really to help improve things. Um, and that's something that I greatly appreciate. Um, so like, once again, thank you. I appreciate you coming on. Um, any last words you have for yourself, man? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again for having me. I, I always enjoy these discussions. Um, and, and one thing too with with me in particular is I I often I will have these conversations with other other white males that's kind of the, the group that I'm you know in a lot and it's unfortunate because I don't get the pers- you know the other perspective and so again when, whenever you're having these conversations keep that you know in mind as well is that you're not really getting the whole picture you're not you know you're, you don't have all of the experiences in that conversation that you know, really might enlighten the conversation and, and better it. And actually, and again, if those conversations aren't uncomfortable, you're probably not doing it right. And make sure that you're holding yourself accountable. And and that's if, if you know, if, if a minority population or a population, and again, minority can be race, it can be um, orientation, it can be a number of different things, whatever right, it is. Right, right, for sure. If they call you out on a behavior, don't take it as a personal insult. Just say, okay, they... Really, the way the way that I see it is, they trust you. They're they're what they're saying is, I can hold this person accountable. I think that they can handle the criticism. Don't prove them wrong by getting all defensive and putting the onus and putting the blame on them for being too critical. That's a dope way of putting it. Accept that. the feedback, make the change, and show that they were right in trusting you. Because frankly, when somebody calls you on your shit, th- that means they think that you stand a chance of being a better person. Take that as a compliment and move on. Don't don't dwell on. It. I like that, man. I really like it. I, I, I can honestly say I don't think I've ever quite looked at it like that. Um, but I think that that's a dope way of putting it. Yeah, I think if, yeah. if, if they if they don't trust you and they think you're a lost cause, they're just going to let the comment blow by and they're just going to think, well, here's here's just another person that's a part of the problem. And I'm if, if you're getting the feedback, that means that, that, that there's that trusting relationship right there. So, again, just, yeah. That's what's up, man. So, once again, another great conversation. Um, and, uh, you know, this has been William Moore on Chill Time is Will Time with my friend Jacob Hunt, where we've talked about 20, you know, 2016 election, predictions for 2020, religion, uh, race, social justice, um, how religion and race, you know, how re- religion has a big, you know, um, I guess an impact on a race and, and social justice, um, and the intricacies and nuances that come with that. Um, if any, as, as always, if anybody has any questions, uh, comments, um, ideas, wants to be on the show, anything like that. You know, you guys know you can reach me at chilltimepod at gmail dot com. Um, I'll always respond as quickly and swiftly as possible. Um, you got any ideas about some, you know, different folks that you want to be um, that you you know should be, you know, uh, uh, be on the podcast? Um, any interesting professions, anything like that? You guys know I'm always open to that. Um, and also, whatever platform you listen to us on, please leave us a rating. 
um, that makes it easier for people to find, you know, find, uh, find the podcast. I would like to say thank you for those who have been listening, those who continue to listen, and those who will listen in the future. Once again, this has been Chill Time is Will Time. This is your host, William Moore, with Jacob Hunt, and I am out of here.